Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... What's up, guys? Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 53. My name is James Scully. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Today, on Breaking Walls, we'll spotlight some of the most famous Irish-American radio actors who were on the air during the golden age of radio. We'll also listen to some of what was broadcast on various St. Patrick's Days through the years on radio between specifically 1937 and 1952. I'm an Irish-American. My last name is Scully. My great-grandfather, James Benedict Scully, was born in County Limerick in 1898 and made his way to New York by way of Boston early in the 20th century. I grew up with strong Irish-American roots here in Brooklyn. That might be some news to some of my Italian-American friends because I'm also partly Italian-American. But my grandfather was one of 11 brothers and sisters. His family lived in Park Slope and Sunset Park in Brooklyn, which was at one time predominantly working-class Irish-American neighborhoods. He grew up, my grandfather, listening to shows like Gangbusters, like the Fred Allen Show, like Broadway is My Beat, and we'll hear some clips from those shows today on Breaking Walls. If this is the first time you're listening to Breaking Walls and want to find out more about what The Wall Breakers is, you can go to thewallbreakers.com. We're also on all social media outlets at The Wall Breakers. If you are getting this podcast and some other means besides iTunes and SoundCloud and want to subscribe, you can do so by searching for Breaking Walls on iTunes or by going to soundcloud.com slash thewallbreakers. The Wallbreakers t-shirt line, which I launched last month, is doing well. These tees are in honor of the unity between the residents of the five boroughs of New York. They take the slang names for each borough, Crooklyn, the Boogie Down, Shaolin, the Bridge for Queensbridge, Queens, and of course Manhattan, the city, which encompasses all five of the boroughs at the same time. Thank you to my friends who've been rocking them, who've been taking photos and posting them on social media. I really appreciate that. Thank you for all the support that you guys have been giving me. If you want to check out the t-shirts, go to jamesthewallbreaker.com slash shop. I'm running these through my personal website because I use Squarespace. It's got a really simple e-commerce setup. And if you like what I'm doing and want to grab a tea, I'd appreciate it very much. And let me know what you think. They're currently in two designs, one in black, one in white. And both of those same designs, there's one script and there's one block letter, their typography. And you can get them in either color. Now, as you know, today is St. Patrick's Day. And it's getting to that time of year where we can feel springtime coming. The clocks just went ahead. Suddenly it's getting dark after seven. St. Patrick's Day has always been one of my favorite holidays. As you'll hear in this episode, in New York specifically, the St. Patrick's Day parade is a massive event. My high school, I went to Xavier High School, a Jesuit high school in Manhattan. They marched in the parade. We got St. Patrick's Day off to check out the parade if we wanted to do whatever we wanted to do. Irish Americans have played both a famous and infamous role in the progress of New York City since the days of Tammany Hall, and St. Patrick's Day in New York is a holiday filled with both Irish and New York pride. Which leads me to the man we'll open Breaking Walls talking about. During this Irish American's career, he hosted his own show, appeared on other famous programs, and his fans included President Franklin D. Roosevelt, novelist William Faulkner, and John Steinbeck. So stay tuned after this brief pause for Breaking Walls, episode number 53. Produced by Darrell Zanuck, written by Harry Tugand and Jack Yellen, Love is News registers comedy triumph. Town Hall News brings you a 10-second preview of this excellent film, Love is News. Wait for just your latest paper, read all about it. What's the headline, boy? Jack Benny and Fred Allen kiss and make up. Is that a front-page romance? And how, mister? With those two mudslingers, Love is News. New York City, New York. Ship officers report stormy crossings on Atlantic Ocean. Record gales lash heavy seas, and ships experience trouble in navigating through storms. Town Hall News flashes candid camera shot of a terrible sea. The sea. (laughs) (laughs) 
Encore, encore, Harry. <laughs> I don't know about the bow, but it was good and itchy there at the beginning. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. And now, as I was saying, if, I, if, if you'll bear with me just, just a moment, ladies and gentlemen, I'll uh, I'll try to find out what's on the my mind of this disgruntled Eskimo. If you'll just turn around. Well, I was just practicing. Why, Harry Bonzel, a big boy like you. <laughs> It might have sounded funny, but you know, last night I was reading about Demosthenes. And what are Demosthenes? Oh, spread out. A big boy like you. Demosthenes was a famous Greek orator. And he used to practice speaking, you know, with pebbles in his mouth to improve his diction and enunciation. Like this, looking. Friends, rowers, and country. And just what do you... He didn't say that. Huh? And just what do you... <laughs> Just what do you hope to accomplish pursuing this strange pastime, Harry? Well, Fred, I, I just thought I'd keep practicing so that when I passed along those friendly tips about salopatica, there wouldn't be a chance of a single word being missed. On May 31st, 1894, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, a boy named John Florence Sullivan was born to Irish Catholic parents. That boy would later go on to become one of the most popular comedians in the first half of the 20th century, changing his name to Fred Allen and, along the way, modernizing American humor. Allen's mother Cecilia died before his third birthday, and when given the choice years later by his father, Allen chose to live with his Aunt Lizzie. I never regretted it, he quipped in his autobiography Much Ado About Me. He was a born entertainer. He took up juggling, learned to play the piano, and while working at the Boston Public Library one day, he discovered a book about the origin and development of comedy. When a girl in the audience of one of his impromptu shows asked him why he didn't quit and go on stage, he decided that she was right and began appearing at a number of amateur night competitions, booking with a local vaudeville circuit at $30 per week. In 1922, while appearing on The Passing Show, he met a chorus girl named Portland Hoffa. Yes, that was her real name. They appeared together in the Greenwich Village Follies in 1925 and 26, and were married in 1927. Portland would go on to become his right hand on radio. Although at first Allen's routines primarily centered around juggling, during his 10 years on vaudeville, Allen's act gradually began to evolve into monologue comedy. He wrote in his first memoir, Treadmill to Oblivion, that his desired result was laughter within the studio amongst the cast, which he found to spread to the listeners and therefore increase ratings. By the time a version of The Fred Allen Show began broadcasting out of New York on radio in 1932, his topically driven satirical humor was considered to be the best in America. He read nine newspapers each day, found the best stories to garner the most laughs weren't the front page blasts, but were actually the page six back blurbs. The news of the day became a long-running segment, and later his Allen's Alley gag, in which Allen would walk down an alley talking to various characters about the day's events, would become another form of them. In 1936, Fred Allen initiated a comedic feud with radio's highest-rated comic Jack Benny. The previous Sunday, Benny had been regaling his audience with his questionable violin prowess and promised to play a version of The Bee on his next program. The following Wednesday, Allen replied, Ladies and gentlemen, on Sunday, a vendor of desserts who has a sideline some call a radio program announced to an apprehensive world that he intends to murder a bee. This dire news has seeped into every nook and cranny of this country, and I understand that citizens are fleeting these shores by the thousands rather than submit to such torture. Allen then brought out a 10-year-old boy named Stuart Cannon, who proceeded to give Jack Benny very elemental instructions on how to hold the bow and the instrument. Cannon played the bee as Allen continued by saying, That was the bee, Mr. Benny, played by a 10-year-old boy. Why, Mr. Benny, at 10, you couldn't even play on the linoleum. Allen's show was broadcast out of New York. Jack Benny happened to be listening in California and erupted with laughter. Allen was taking a real chance. Benny was America's highest rated comedian, and Allen knew that in order to engage in a feud and boost his own ratings, his comedic prowess would have to be on display like never before. Benny finally responded on his show, The Jello Program, on January 3rd, 1937. Each successive week, the feud was built until it was decided that Benny and Allen would meet in the fight of the century on March 14th. NBC was flooded with ticket requests. The entire country was caught up in the foolishness. The show was moved to the Grand Ballroom at the Hotel Pierre in New York City to accommodate the crowds. 
The two stepped outside to have it out, but when they returned, they were backslapping remembering the old days of vaudeville. Later, they performed a song together. His St. Patrick's Day broadcast on Wednesday, March 17, 1937, came three days after Allen appeared on Benny's program, supposedly squashing their beef. If it isn't Portland. Yes, Papa sent me over to see you. It's very important. What's important? Papa says you should make up your mind what night you're going to be on the radio. Well, you don't think just because I went on with Jack Benny last Sunday that the people are getting confused, do you? I'll say they are. I saw the man upstairs brushing his teeth with Jello this morning. Well... <laughs> See, you will get a life membership in the Don Wilson Foundation <laughs> for that. You've saved them that much work next Sunday. Well, that doesn't make any difference. People brush their teeth with jello just as long as they don't try to buy iPanner and six delicious flavors. They'll be all right. Come in. Telegram for Fred Allen. Right here, boy. All right, sign here. Here's a pencil. Thank you, son. The boy's still waiting, Mr. Allen. Uh, thank you, son. Don't give me none of that, buddy. Now, see here. Listen, Greaseball, I don't mind not getting my tip, but when you try to cop my pencil, you're rubbing it in. Here's your pencil, stickler. Okay, cheapskate. That boy's too fresh. Why don't you tear up the telegram and get even with him, Mr. Allen? <laughs> no, here, you, uh, you read it. I... I've got to blow down my neck. Blow down your neck? Yes, I'm I'm getting hot under the collar. I'll see who the telegram's from. All right. <laughs> what does it say? Dear Palsy Wowsy, happy birthday to you. I know it isn't your birthday, but I had to have an excuse to send you loads of love. Who sent that? It's signed Jack Benny. Oh, Jackie, hey? He's a prince. Oh, there's a sweet guy, Portland. Good old Jackie. Gosh, he's so sweet, he's almost sticky. It's silly to send a birthday wire when it isn't your birthday. Listen, it isn't the stupidity... It's the sentiment gets me. <laughs> There's the whitest guy I know. Yes, you thought he was anemic. <laughs> now, listen, don't let anyone tell you Jackie Benny's anemic. He just stays white on purpose so everybody else will look healthy. Gosh, Jack must have a big heart. Why, Jackie Benny's heart's so big, you can put a stethoscope on him any place and get action. <laughs> Did you hear his program last Sunday? Yes. What was that static right in the middle of it? Static? Was it before or after Jack and I sang? It was during. During? Well, let me tell you something. A lot of people didn't catch our names when we sang. How do you know? Nelson Eddy got 300 wires from people who said they enjoyed his double voice solo. Gosh, to me it sounded like two wildcats Picketing a pet shop. Two wildcats picketing a pet shop. <laughs> Do you know that the next morning after Jackie and I sang at the pier, all of the flowers bloomed in Central Park? <laughs> they thought the robins were back from the south. That's done it. Mr. That's Blow. done it. Nine years later, on Jack Benny's March 17, 1946 St. Patrick's Day show, his Irish tenor, Dennis Day, returned from the Navy. The Jack Benny Program. Starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, today, March 17th, is St. Patrick's Day. 
As you all know, St. Patrick drove the snakes out of Ireland. So today we bring you a man who was run out of Waukegan, Jack Benny. man there anyway. Thank you, thank you. Hello again. This is Jack Betty talking. And Don, for your information, I wasn't run out of Waukegan. It was merely a request by the city fathers and mine. <laughs> and being a sharp guy, I took the hint and two shirts and left. Well, let's not talk about me. After all, this is St. Benny's, I mean St. Patrick's Day. That's why I'm wearing this shamrock in my lapel. Shamrock? Yes. That's a moth that took a bite out of that $12 suit and turned green. All right, don't be funny. This is a very good suit. Taste it. I mean, feel it. Anyway, why aren't you wearing something green today? I am wearing something green. See? Oh, yes, yes. What is it? It's that gold bracelet you gave me for Christmas. <laughs> Mary, that's an old joke. All I know is I polish my other bracelets. This one, the gardener takes care of. Well, that's appreciation for After all, Mary, it wasn't easy to get that bracelet. I spent over three hours at that claw machine. And now, ladies and gentlemen... <laughs> Good. I didn't know it was going to be that good. I'm going to tell you. You know, you're St. Jackson. What? You're talking about St. Patrick's Day. Did I ever tell you the one about that friend of mine who got an Irish car? An Irish car? Yeah, every time you blow the horn, it plays Ireland must be heaven because my motor came from there. <laughs> oh, Harris, you're the Barry Fitzgerald of the Bobby Sox. <laughs> well, pull out your garters and get out of here, will you? Put on your garters, right? You always try to run St. one... Jack. What? Jack, since this is St. Patrick's Day, don't you think we ought to do this a This program is starting out like we had no rehearsals at all. And you want to know something? We did it. Everybody walks in any time they want. Hey, Jackson, they holler. What is it? What, what is well, it? Well, Jack, this being St. Patrick's Day, don't you think we ought to do a little play for our Irish listeners? Well, we're doing better than that, Don. Tonight, for the first time since his release from the Navy... Dennis Day, the smiling Irish songbird, will be back with us. Oh, so the kid's coming back, huh, Jackson? Yep. Gosh, Jack, Dennis has been gone for two years. I'll bet the Navy has changed him a lot. I'll bet it has, too. Anyway, he ought to be here by now. I think I'll call his house and see what's keeping him. Now, <laughs> Phil, you don't use it. Come in. I beg your pardon, but hello again. Dennis! Dennis Day! <laughs> Kid, welcome back. Gee, it's good to see you. Gosh, Mary, doesn't he look wonderful? Oh, he sure does. Oh, boy, I never expected this. Are you going to kiss me too, Miss Livingston? <laughs> Why, certainly, Dennis. Doggone, Dennis, I can't get over. You look so mature. You've changed so. Well, sure he's changed, Jackson. This kid's been in the Navy for two years. He's grown up. Yeah, up. Huh? <laughs> hmm. About yourself. Did you enjoy your two years in the Navy? I sure did, Miss Livingston. The Navy's wonderful. I went all over the South Pacific and I saw plenty. <laughs> I imagine you did, kid. Say, <laughs> yeah, I bet you had a lot of fun, too. Say, Dennis. Dennis, I've been wanting to ask you something. Uh, tell me, kid, uh, how about those waves? That's what made me seasick. <laughs> Yeah, yeah grown up. up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Dennis, I was all over the South Pacific, too, and I ran into some pretty rough seas. In fact, once I was tossed overboard. Oh, I was tossed overboard lots of times. You were? Yeah, but the captain made the fellows cut it out. <laughs> Dennis, the boys kept throwing you overboard. That's terrible. Oh, it wasn't so bad. The Japs kept throwing me back. <laughs> he was a pickle in the middle. Yeah. Say, Dennis, when you first joined the Navy, how did they know how to classify you? I mean, how did they know what rank to give you? Oh, that was easy, Miss Livingston. First, I had to fill out a lot of forms, answer a lot of questions, and then for two days, they gave me a written test. For two days? That must have been quite a test. And after it was all over, they made me an ensign. An ensign? <laughs> an ensign? Yeah. I wonder what they'd have made me if I'd have passed. <laughs> Maybe it's just as well you didn't. We won the war this way. <laughs> well, come on, Dennis. We all want to hear a song. What's it going to be? Well, since today is St. Patrick's Day, I thought I'd sing Danny Boy. That's swell. Go sure. Go right ahead. Oh, Danny Boy, up 
pipes, the pipes are calling From glen to glen and down the mountainside The summer's gone and all the roses falling It's you, it's you must go and I must go While I was recuperating, I started singing around local radio shows in uh, New York City and... Uh, Kenny Baker left the uh, Jack Benny show, and uh, someone suggested I send over an acetate of a couple of songs I'd done on uh, some of the local radio stations on WHN and uh, CBS. So I did, and by good fortune, Mary Livingston happened to hear the record. And she liked the record. She saw my picture and all and brought it to Chicago to Jack. He came in and auditioned me, and that was the start of the whole thing. They gave me a round-trip ticket to come out to California, an audition out here, which I did, and then about two weeks before the program went back on the air after the summer hiatus, mm-hmm. uh, Jack signed me to a contract. It was a five-year contract with a two-week option. If I didn't make good in two weeks, uh, he had the option to drop me. Then in the first year, it was for every 13 weeks, so they would pick me up after the first two weeks for the next 11. Then it was every 13 weeks. And uh, I stayed with him, as I say, for the full mm-hmm. five years. And then I went into the Navy in World War II, spent two years in the Navy. And then when I got out of the Navy, I went back with Jack, and I had my own radio show at the same time, uh, Colgate. by Dennis Day. And now... Say, Mr. Benny, I meant to ask you, how's Mr. Allen? Who? Fred Allen. Well, kid, it was nice seeing you again. (laughs) No, no, Phil. In fact, I'm glad he brought it up. Dennis, I'm happy to tell you that Fred Allen has the same old program, the same old joke, the same old... Oh, wait a minute, Jack. That's not fair. I've heard all of Fred's programs, and they've been very funny. Yeah, Mary, I wouldn't mind if his joke just laid there. But they crawl out of the radio and stain your rugs. Program. That just shows what you know, Jackson. I think the funniest thing in radio is Alan's Alley. Oh, you do, huh? Yeah. I think so, too. Oh, you do, eh? I think so, too. Oh, you do, eh? I think Mr. Benny is much funnier than Mr. Allen. I think so, too. <laughs> oh, you do, eh? As I mentioned on the show open, New York City's St. Patrick's Day Parade is not only one of the largest, but it's also one of the oldest civilian parades in the world. Each year, over 150,000 citizens march in the five-hour procession up the 1.5-mile route along Fifth Avenue in Manhattan with hundreds of thousands of spectators watching. It's a festive atmosphere. Bars and restaurants open early in the morning along the way, some giving out free food and drink to passers-by. The area where Fifth Avenue converges with Central Park at 59th Street is a hub for tourists trying to catch a glimpse of the action. The March 17, 1941 episode of The Burns and Allen Show, which starred husband and wife comedy duo George Burns and Gracie Allen, centered around the New York City Parade. New York's the George Burns and Gracie Allen Show for Hormel and Sam. <laughs> 
George and Gracie. Spam, whoa boy. Spam, what joy. George Burns, Gracie Allen. On show when the dog is strong. The singing glee with a smoothie sweet. To start the fun, here's Jimmy Wallington. Your two delightful spam stars, George and Gracie. Thank you, thank you very, very much. First of all, just in the middle of July, the afternoon was wet and the morning well, was dry. Well, Gracie, you're in a very, very gay mood tonight. Gay mood? Well, sure, I'm in a gay mood. Everybody's in a gay mood today. Today's the day. Today's the day. St. Patrick's Day. The same. Most wonderful day in the year, and I'm not saying that because I'm Irish. Oh, no, 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 no. Of course, I'm only Irish on my mother and father's side. I say. <laughs> only on your mother and father's yeah, side. Yeah, and that goes for them, too. I see what you mean, yeah. Oh, I can just see my uncle tonight with his top hat and his frock coat looking into the mirror to see if his black eyes aren't straight. First, I'm 31st of August in the, in the middle, middle of, of July. I'll bet your family was in good spirits tonight. Oh, and vice versa. <laughs> oh, George. George, I marched in the Fifth Avenue Parade today. It was the St. Patrick's Day Parade, you know. I know, you know. I was born in New York. I've seen oh, those parades. Oh, boy. What excitement. Every year you have those parades. Yeah, what excitement. Born what here, you know, What yes. glamour. What bargains at Bergdorf Goodman's window. What crowds. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Bergdorf Goodman's window? Yeah, what crowds. Even, even, even the parade didn't stop you from window shopping? Oh, no. Oh, and this is kind of cute, George. A floor walker was peeking out of the window, and he was flirting with me. Flirting with you? Uh-huh. Well, I sort of looked at him, and he winked back at me. And, he uh, winked back at you. Yes. I see. And you know he looked you just. You didn't wink at him first. No, 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 no. Did you ever wank at anybody? No. No. <laughs> no. He he just looked at me and. Uh, you know who he looks like? Hmm. He looks like that movie star with a big mouth. You know Joey Green. He was sort of tall. Joey and, Green? Yes, he was sort Tracy, of tall. I say it's Joey Brown. Not on St. Patrick's Day. Was on the thirty-first of August in the middle of July. So you were in the parade today, huh? Oh yes. And it stopped at 57th Street, and we had a two-hour demonstration. two-hour demonstration? Yes. Uh, there was a traffic light there, and every time it turned green, we cheered. I see what you yes. mean, yes, yes. And every time it turned red, we booed. You booed? We had more Gracie, fun. I'll, bet, and... I'll bet there must have been a lot of booze. Oh, no, no booze. Nobody was drinking. Who's on the third? Oh, oh, just in the middle of July. Oh, no booze. Oh, stop, Gracie. I'm getting so hoarse, I can hardly talk above a whiskey. Yes. Oh, oh just imagine, George. Do you Hennessy what I mean? George, just imagine... That's a pretty little... star joke. <laughs> just imagine... And another joke later that I'll use for Chaser. For Chaser. <laughs> George, just imagine little me of all people leading such a big parade. Mm. 80,000 Irishmen following me. 79,000 were policemen. I see what you mean. <laughs> Gracie, Gracie, in the first place, I don't believe you were leading the parade. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, well, well, I wasn't exactly leading the parade. I was sort of up in front, more like in the middle. Oh, in the middle. Well, more towards the end, sort of like last. Like last, yes, yes. It was a great parade, they tell me. I'm sorry I missed it. You missed it? On the 31st of August. In oh, stop, the of... stop. Well, I didn't exactly miss it. What happened was, I was on the sidewalk, and there was a little fellow who couldn't see the parade, so I put him on my shoulder. A little, a little fellow? Yeah, Mayor LaGuardia. And he couldn't see the parade. Wait a minute. Uh, so I Mayor, put him on... Mayor LaGuardia? Yeah, First of August in the middle of July. Look, I've had enough of this parade and enough of the song. And, Judge, during the parade, there were men selling shamrocks, green ice cream, furniture, clay pots, They were selling furniture? Yeah, a man came up to me and he said, he he says, Lady, will you give me 25 cents for a bed? And I said to him, I said, I said, now listen to me, my good man. Just a second. If you don't mind pausing, I have a line. Well. A very big line. Gracie, the man was a panhandler. No, he was only handling bed. 
Oh, he didn't have any pants. Well, I couldn't tell he had on long overcoats. Oh, but don't just pretend to say he's All right, please, please. Say, Gracie, whenever you meet a panhandler, why don't you do what I do? I just brush them off. Well, Jimmy, with your mustache, you can do it. <laughs> no, what I mean is, Gracie, I don't get... General Mills, makers of kicks, invite you to beat the band. If you can. Game shows like Deal or No Deal, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and Hollywood Squares all owe their ideological origins to radio. One such early game show, NBC's Beat the Band, originally aired from January 28, 1940 through February 23, 1941, and was sponsored by the then-brand-new Kick Serial. In Beat the Band, listeners would write in submitting riddles to the band. The answers to these riddles were song titles. If the listener who wrote in the question stumped the band and the band could not figure out what the song was, the listener who wrote in would receive $10 for submitting the question, $20 for beating the band, and a box of kick cereal. Now, $30 doesn't seem like a lot, but keep in mind, this was 1940. $30 in today's dollars is about $520. Not a bad chunk of change for simply writing in a question and stumping a 14-piece orchestra. The show featured the host Gary Moore, who would later introduce the world to Carol Burnett as well as, like I mentioned, a 14-piece orchestra fronted by Ted Weems. The orchestra used three singers, Parker Gibbs, Marvel Marilyn Maxwell, who would go on to be a sex symbol in the 1940s and 50s, as well as the soon-to-break-out Perry Cuomo. The March 17, 1940 edition of Beat the Band was entitled The Wearing of the Green. Our second question, today being a great day for the Irish, and if you don't believe it, ask one of them, we offer a question propounded by Paul D. Lytle of Urbana, Illinois. Says Patrick, "'Tis a great distance this trip I'm taking. Now, what song title is suggested by that? "'Tis a great distance this trip I'm taking, and there goes Elmo Terry. He wants to try again, all right? It's a long way to Tipperary. Bravo, my boy. Thank you. All right, all right. Gets 10 points up on the scoreboard and doesn't have to feed the old bass drum. Now, here we go into our third question. Are there uh, any leathernecks in the crowd? Graham Moore of Seattle, Washington writes, What very popular song is suggested by the motto of the United States Marines, Semper Fidelis? What very popular song? All right, there goes Parker Gibbs. Hand up in the air. Semper is faithful forever. That's absolutely right. Semper Fidelis means always faithful. Always faithful, yeah. Good enough. Can you play it? All right. Good enough. Parker Gibbs gets his first ten points up on the scoreboard for today. And now, boys, you can take it easy because here's one for Ted to answer. Ted, if the whole band started playing at once and they all started on the same tune, what would the title be? Well, if they started to play the one we rehearsed, and it better, it would probably be Make Love with a Guitar. I wouldn't be surprised if Perry Como sang it. Stern got his start in vaudeville, and by 1931, he was the assistant stage manager at the Roxy Theater in New York, a role he later had at Radio City. This role at Radio City led to an opportunity to broadcast Friday Night Fights on NBC for Adam Hatz, opening the door for Stern to become one of the most popular sports broadcasters of the day. In 1937, he began broadcasting his own sports newsreel on NBC, sponsored by Colgate. He had a knack for drawing the listener in with his poignant, eulogy-like style and animated way of vocalizing. 
This was taken from his March 17, 1944 broadcast. Real four. Profile of a song. Today is St. Patrick's Day, hence it's particularly appropriate that we now tell the story, for this is a St. Patrick's Day story. Our story begins shortly after the turn of the century, when two brothers named John and Michael Shea enrolled at Notre Dame University. They were as Irish as their Irish names. As soon as John and Michael Shea entered Notre Dame, they were immediately impressed with the fighting spirit of the Notre Dame football team. True, neither John nor Michael Shea was a football player, for both were studying music. But even musicians can be ardent football fans, and these brothers were. This was the year 1903. It was the very first year a Notre Dame football team had ever gone through a whole season without losing a single game. Well, that called for a celebration. But when it came time to celebrate, both John and Michael Shea were amazed to find that Notre Dame had no victory song to celebrate with. Being musicians, they immediately set out to remedy this. That night, the two brothers wrote a song. Into this song, they poured out their love for Notre Dame, their pride in their unbeaten football team. They called their song the Notre Dame Fighting Irish Victory March. At first, it was only sung out on the college campus at South Bend, but soon it began to be sung by Irishmen all over the country, and it spread like wildfire. That year, it became the most popular Irish song in all America. People everywhere were singing. Cheer, cheer for old Notre Dame. Wake up the echoes cheering her name While her loyal sons are marching Onward to victory That song reached such great heights of popularity that people who'd never even heard a Notre Dame went around humming its strains. And Irishmen everywhere sang it the loudest, for after all, wasn't it the song of the fighting Irish? In fact, this song became so popular that a famous New York theatrical producer named Chauncey Alcott, who was then about to present an Irish musical play, decided to use this very song as the finale in his play. Since the play was to be all about St. Patrick's Day, Chauncey Alcott thought that surely this popular song of the Irish would be most appropriate. And Chauncey Alcott's show was a big success, too. However, the morning after the play opened, the dramatic critics found one fault. The New York Times said, Chauncey Alcott's new Irish musical play, which opened last night, had one serious mistake. Mr. Alcott uses the currently popular Notre Dame Fighting Irish Victory Song for his finale. Granted that the song has become an Irish favorite, it is still a college marching song and not a love song such as this play needs. Chauncey Alcott read the New York Times' dramatic critics' review and realized that that very critic was right. After all, his play was a love story about St. Patrick's Day, and it did need a love song, not a college marching song. But where could he find such a love song? That night in desperation, Chauncey Alcott decided to try and write such a song himself. First, the melody came to him. Now, now if he could only find words to go with that tune. Finally had it all down on paper. It was an Irish love song, just what his play needed. That night, Chauncey Alcott took the Notre Dame Fighting Irish Victory March out of his Broadway show and replaced it with his new Irish love song that he'd just written. The song was an immediate success. It became one of the greatest Irish love songs ever written. For you see, this Irish love song that Chauncey Alcott had just written was My Wild Irish Rose. My Wild Irish Rose The dearest flower that grows And so... Because the Notre Dame football song didn't fit into a St. Patrick's Day number of a Broadway show, My Wild Irish Rose was written. But that's not the end of the story. You see, Chauncey Alcott, who wrote My Wild Irish Rose, for a St. Patrick's Day number, died some years later on St. Patrick's Day. of a love song that was written to replace Notre Dame's football favorite. Like many observational humorists that have followed since, life wasn't always easy for Fred Allen. Hypertension forced him off the air for a time in 1944, but he returned in 1945 better than ever. It became a habit of Allen's to pack his show with so much ad-libbing that shows ran long and were abruptly cut off by NBC's show-closing chimes. This created problems with his sponsors, who were supposed to receive a closing ad spot, and with network vice presidents. Allen referred to them as molehill men because they, quote, 
came to work every morning at 9 o'clock and found a lot of molehills on their desks, then had until 5 o'clock to make mountains out of them. When Allen wrote a skit called The Radio milk Adoo, containing references to the hucksters of radio, the vice presidents and clerks who were confidentially a bunch of jerks, he was censored by NBC. Allen was no longer allowed to ad-lib on air. He took out his frustrations in the press, calling the censors the executive fungus that forms on desks. Shortly thereafter, when on air, the network cut him off in the middle of a joke, but other comedians joined in. Red Skelton mentioned Allen on his show and was immediately cut off too, but he kept talking to his studio audience, telling them, you know what NBC means, don't you? Nothing but cuts, nothing but confusion, nobody's certain. Finally, Dennis Day took the last shot at the network on his Day in the Life Wednesday night NBC sitcom. I'm listening to the radio, he said to his girlfriend Mildred. I don't hear anything, said Mildred. I know, said Dennis. Fred Allen's on. NBC announced shortly thereafter that its comedians were free to say whatever they liked. In 1946, Allen and Jack Benny buried the hatchet for good on Allen's show with a skit entitled King for a Day, which satirized big money game shows and featured Jack Benny pretending to be a contestant named Myron Proudfoot on Allen's new quiz show. This skit climaxes after Benny yelled, I'm King for a Day, and shortly thereafter, to his own huge surprise, had his coat and pants removed in the studio under the direction of Allen. The laughter in the audience is so long and loud that announcer Kenny Delmore gets cut off in mid-sentence as he tries to get in the final word from the sponsor. Oh, boy! And with the compliments of Tiffany, this chromium pitchfork. For me, a four-pronger, and it's all mine. And from Hemingway's hardware store, 200 pounds of self-hardening putty for King for a Day. Just what I needed. Just what I needed. This is just the beginning, King. King, you are over 35. By two years. Fine. That's Jumbo Carter, Uncle Jim. For His Majesty. He is over... Effie, Effie, that's yipe, backwards. And here, the piston rod from a genuine Baldwin locomotive, or His Majesty the King. Oh, locomotive. And here, from Melody Lane Music Shop, this case of 2,000 soybean mandolin picks. These are the mandolins. I just keep pinching myself to believe it. Immediately after this program, Your Majesty will be guest of honor at a banquet at Hamburger Heaven. Tomorrow morning, through the courtesy of the sanitation department, you will be guest conductor on the 11.5 garbage run through the Bronx. <laughs> At night, in your ermine robe, you will be whisked by bicycle to Orange, New Jersey, where you will be the judge in a chicken cleaning contest. <laughs> I'm king for a day! And that's not all. There's more? Yes, we are going to start right now to make you look like a king. Sam of Sam's Super Shoe Shine Stand is here to brush your shoes. All right, Sam. Sam, watch out for the button. Next, the president of the Busy Bee Hat Cleaners is here to block your hat. Take the king's hat, Mr. Bumble. And change the newspaper and the hat bag. <laughs> your suit is a little baggy, king. Boys, take his majesty's coat off. On our stage, we have a Hoffman pressing machine. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. An expert operating the Hoffman pressing machine will press your trousers. Now, wait a minute. Broadcasting Company. 
on the evening of March 17, 1956, 19 years and three days after he sold out the Pierre Hotel with Jack Benny, Fred Allen was taking an evening stroll along West 57th Street in New York when he suffered a fatal heart attack in front of a friend's house. Fred Allen was 61 years old when he passed away that St. Patrick's Day in 1956. When word got to Jack Benny, he was profoundly shaken. People have often asked me if Fred Allen and I were really friends in real life. My answer is always the same. You couldn't have a long-running and successful feud as we did without having a deep and sincere friendship at the heart of it. Allen died before he could complete the final chapter of his memoirs, Much Ado About Me, and as a result, the book was published as he had left it. During the following night's regular Sunday broadcast of What's My Line, a show that Allen was regularly a panel member on, host John Daly preceded the program at 10.30 with a special message to the viewing audience. He stated that earlier in the day, the producers had considered replacing the regular gameplay with a special memorial episode, but Allen's wife, Portland Hoffa, stated that she preferred the show to be conducted as always had it been, indicating that that's what Allen would have wanted. The program then proceeded as normal, but with a noticeably subdued tone. Steve Allen took Fred's chair on the panel. During the final 90 seconds of the program, he, along with Arlene Francis and Bennett Cerf, whose eyes began to water, gave brief but heartfelt tributes to Fred. Fred Allen is why there was a Johnny Carson, is why there was a Jack Parr, is a Jay Leno, a David Letterman, and even a Saturday Night Live. His on-again, off-again comedic feud with Jack Benny drove ratings and drove the two of them into the American lexicon, and today he's remembered as one of the most forward-thinking humorists during the golden age of radio. It's hard for Fred Allen's comedy to stand up because it was so topical, but I think when you go back and listen to his episodes, the laughter in his audience and among his own cast members shows what kind of a humorist he was. The fact that he had to go off the air with symptoms of hypertension that he fought with his network executives truly paved the way for comedians to follow. There might not be a Larry David if there isn't a Fred Allen. The snippet that you heard of A King for a Day featuring he and Jack Benny is the stuff of legend. It was almost totally ad-libbed, and it shows based on the audience laughter and how much longer it runs than it's supposed to, past the 30-minute time limit, cut off by, on the air by NBC itself, how, when you put together these kind of comedic geniuses, what happens? I could not have a St. Patrick's Day episode on the air without it focusing on Fred Allen, not only because he was an Irish-American who got his start in New York and on the radio, but because he also happened to pass away on St. Patrick's Day. At the same time, Fred Allen was the kind of comedian I think that would appreciate something as topical as an episode about St. Patrick's Day on the air in the history of radio. I'm going to bring a close to Breaking Walls episode number 53 right here, and I want to just say a few things. The snippet that you heard of Dennis Day talking about how he was hired for the Jack Benny program was from a recorded conversation between episode 52 guest Chuck Shaden and Dennis Day on August 11, 1976. To hear the full interview and other interviews at Radio Players from the Golden Age by Chuck Shaden, please go to speakingofradio.com. To learn more about Fred Allen, Look up his autobiographies, Treadmill to Oblivion, and Much Ado About Me. You can find any kind of Fred Allen clips, radio shows. Go to different various YouTube sources. Search the Internet Archives. Search for either The Fred Allen Show, The Texaco Star Theater, Town Hall Tonight, or Allen's Alley. I want to wish everybody a happy St. Patrick's Day. I hope that today you are enjoying life. And may the best day of your past be the worst day of your future. And remember... As springtime approaches, what is luck, really, but a feeling that we deserve to have good in our lives? If you asked me why today's topic, or why the topic for this month on The Wall Breakers is serendipity, I think it's because we all deserve to have happiness. We all deserve to feel serendipity's smile. And what's the best way to do that, guys? To keep getting out there and keep breaking those walls, allowing yourself to be vulnerable, putting yourself on the stage that is life, talking to people that you might not know, talking to people that you know very well. Happy St. Patrick's Day. My name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode number 53. And until next time, I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.